0: Now back to the Ian O'Connor Show on 98.7 ESPN. What a summer it's been. Amazing rain. And here we are watching the Open Championship in England. And the weather over there, it's supposed to rain and you're supposed to get wind in this major. And it's been nothing but sunshine, it seems, and blue skies. Particularly for Colin Morikawa, who now is in control of the Open Championship at Royal St. George's. We'll talk about that in a bit. But... Let's hope we get some good weather, some sunshine like they're having at the Open Championship going forward. We certainly could use it. Right now, the Mets could certainly use a, a few good breaks. And where they are right now, we, when we talk about crises or when we have on this program the last five or so weeks, it's, it's all been about the New York Yankees. And it seems now that the Mets have finally run into a period here where this is their crisis and just losing games the way they're losing them to one of the worst teams in the sport, in the Pirates. And it's, at this point now, two and a half games back. DeGrom hurt again for the fifth time this year. Lindor could be out for who knows how long with the oblique strain. And the Mets obviously one of the, right now, the second-to-last team in Major League Baseball in terms of runs per game, now losing to the worst team in that category in the Pirates. And so this is now a crisis, I think, for the Mets. Only two and a half games up in the division now. Probably, well, if it's not the worst division in baseball, it's it's right there. It is a relatively lame division that they really need to win this year. I thought this was a golden opportunity for them, given the fact that the NL East was as down as it was, having the best pitcher in the sport, having an offense that should be doing a whole lot more than it is right now. And, You get back Nimmo, you get back Davis, who had the two home runs last night, and Nimmo, of course, had the home run as well, and put the Mets in position to win the game. They had scored enough runs to win this game, particularly against that team, and Lugo was a disaster, and then, of course, Diaz with two outs in the ninth gives up the walk-off grand slam to Stallings. And the Pirates win 9-7 after trailing 6 nothing. I saw a stat on ESPN.com via the Associated Press that was hard to believe that this year, 314 times in Major League Baseball, a team carried a lead of at least six runs into the eighth inning or later and won all 314 times until last night when the Mets carried a 6-0 lead into the 8th and lost. First time in 315 possibilities that a team would lose in that situation, the Mets, of course, lost that game. You know, before the All-Star break, they blew that lead to the Pirates as well. Diaz again. So this is a situation now where uh, Louis Rojas is, and I think he's done a really good job this year. He hasn't been the greatest tactician, but he's a young manager. He's learning. This team, for the most part, plays hard for him every day. And I think that's more important, I've said this on the show before, than strategy and X's and O's in sports. As a manager, as a head coach in any sport, the fact that you can inspire your players to play at a high level, to play hard for you almost every day. And I think he's done that. I think he's pushed the right human buttons with this team over the course of the season. But he's got to find some buttons now because it's going the wrong way. Lindor is going, going to be out for weeks DeGrom you don't know about, and if, God forbid, he's hurt for a long period of time, I think that the Mets are in really, really serious trouble. And they're not going to be a wild card this year. You're not going to have a wild card come out of that division. If you look at the wild card standings right now in the NL East, the Mets would be about, I think, five back. So they have to win that division. And there really is no reason for them not to. I I think they have enough. They should have enough offensively now that some guys are back. As long as DeGrom is not hurt for any period of time. I think they can survive Lindor for X amount of weeks. And they can move forward and still win the NL East. I think that's possible. But they have to get their act together. They need to win this game today in Pittsburgh. And we'll have Mike Puma, the excellent longtime Mets beat writer for the New York Post. We'll have him on at 12.45. We'll have... Ken is our of the post also on at one o'clock to talk about the British. We've got we're hoping for Jeff Van Gundy. He's threatening to call in after he lands today flying, I believe, into Milwaukee for game six of the NBA finals. We'll talk about where the Bucks are, where the Suns are after last night's surprising to me anyway, performance by Phoenix. I thought they were going to win that game, hold serve at home and take it into Milwaukee up 3-2. Of course, that didn't happen after the first quarter. It sure looked like it was going to happen that way, and it didn't. The Suns were up 16 points at the end of one, got dominated completely in the second quarter, lost the third quarter as well, tried to rally late, and just didn't have enough. And... The, the problem there, if you are the Phoenix Suns, is you can't have the big three, all three guys with the Bucks, score the way they did. You need to contain one of them. That one is probably Holiday because he's so good defensively. And if he's going to score the way he did last night in game six Tuesday night, then I think it ends in six. So that's the problem that the Suns face right now. Finding a way to hold one of the big three down to extend that game to a game uh, series to a game seven in Phoenix, and then take your chances there, but talking about the Mets right now, and the phone line is one eight hundred nine one nine three seven seven six one eight hundred nine one nine three seven seven six We'll also get to Yankees, Red Sox, of course, the Yankees stabilizing their situation. A little bit last night, Garrett Cole, of course, came up big. Rain-shortened game. I'm sure Yankee fans were doing a bit of a rain dance, (laughs) given the fact that the Red Sox had won seven, the first seven meetings this year between these two blood rivals. And Cole, who had the huge moment before the All-Star break in Houston, his homecoming, 129 pitches, that complete game masterpiece, now comes back and and backs it up with a great 11-strikeout performance over six innings the Yankees, with the rain delay and the postponement suspension of that game, win, and they needed that, of course. They needed just to find a way to to beat the Red Sox and prove to themselves and their fan base and everyone else that they could actually do it. So to come back tonight, Sunday night baseball, 7 o'clock, in the Bronx, and win again, I think would uh, really help towards the the goal of just trying to stabilize themselves long-term. They're four-and-a-half back in the wild card. They got a bad break Friday night when Jed Lowry, of all people, who did absolutely nothing for the Mets, as you know, hit a walk-off homer for Oakland to push the Yankees five-and-a-half back in the wild card. Oakland lost last night. Yankees win, so now they're four-and-a-half back, and that's where you have to look. I, I think catching the Red Sox at this point is unrealistic being eight back still, but with a lot of games against Boston to play, including four and Fenway coming up. So uh, a big opportunity for the Yankees to gain some ground in the postseason race, more in a wild card context, realistically, than in the division. But we'll see how it plays out. The Mets, as I said earlier, this is the first time I feel like they're in a Yankee-like crisis situation right now and need to get their act together very quickly and so we had uh, yesterday the first time in 315 chances in Major League Baseball this year where a team with a lead of at least six runs entering the eighth inning or later actually lost. The Mets did that. Diaz, of course, gave up the grand slam to Stallings. This was the Mets' closer on giving up that home run. Couldn't believe it when
1: Clinton played the fence. I thought it was a fly ball. So they would keep carrying on, you know, he got the homer.
0: Yeah, he and he was pointing to the sky like it was a fly ball that was going to be caught. And Pilar made an incredible effort. What a that guy's a great athlete. Of course, he always leads with his chin, and he he dove into the crowd, basically and climbed the wall, and and got over it, and made an incredible attempt to try to bring that ball back, and it didn't happen. And the Mets lose in a just a devastating fashion. It, it the, the Mets have had, and the Yankees, of course, as well. But the Mets have had some losses that have really been heartbreaking, gutting, devastating, whatever you want to say about them. But last night, the walk-off grand slam against that team in that situation, that uh, really hurt. And uh, Rojas, uh, with DeGrom now for the fifth time this year, coming up with an injury, now forearm tightness in a bullpen session. He was scratched from the start in Cincinnati tomorrow night. Rojas talked about that DeGrom injury.
2: So um, and it's good that you asked that so I can reveal this. So yeah, Walker Walker's going tomorrow for us. And we were TBA, we're waiting on Jake to throw his side yesterday. Um, as you guys know, he he, uh, he got in um, pregame right here to the field and they did all the intake process that we needed to do with all the guys, according to protocol. And, um, <clears throat> but when he was throwing his side, he felt some tightness in his um, uh, forearm and 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 he didn't finish his side so uh we're evaluating him um he has been getting treatment so we'll see where where he's at but right now he's he's you know not pitching monday either so we uh we're we're approaching him day to day at this time um but yeah that's something he told me that he felt it when this is he told me this today by the way i didn't know about this he told me that he felt it on a side that he threw before the break Uh, he played catch at home and intended to throw a side there too. And he felt the tightness again and he just stopped throwing. And he felt that a couple of days off and coming here, throwing a side Friday, he was going to be away because it's some similar, it's a similar feel that he has in between starts sometimes with forearm tightness, but goes away, but this time hasn't gone away. And that's why right now he's just getting treatment. Now, if you recall, I was one of the voices
0: around here who felt that a few weeks ago, Even longer than that, the Mets should have closed him down for just a few weeks, let his body recover fully and heal. And he's had all these right-side issues. And it seems to me when you have an asset, a franchise player that valuable, that you try to do everything you can to protect it at all costs and be as careful with it as possible. And so I don't know where they are with DeGrom and if he can make it through this season but these, now these five injuries that have popped up over time really have to concern you as a Mets fan, counting on making the postseason. The only route to it, it seems, for the Mets is to win a very winnable NL East. They are the only team now over 500 in that division, but their divisional lead is down to two and a half games. And to lose to the Pirates, 20 games under 500, but now 4-2 and two against the Mets this year. You're talking again about the lowest-scoring team in Major League Baseball. The Mets are second to last in that category, but still, you need to win these games. Now that you have back Davis, who had the two-run two homers, Nimo with the homer that you thought gave them the cushion they would need, and then, of course, it was not to be. Lindor being out for as long, we don't know how long, but oblique strains are very delicate situations, and it's very difficult to come back from them. This could take, who knows, a month, longer. We'll see how it plays out. This was Lindor on his injury.
2: This is the first time that something like this happens in my career. Um, I
1: I don't have any timetable. I guess I would love to say I'm day to day, but I'm not. Uh, this is more like maybe week to week
2: at the beginning, and then see how how I bounce back. Um, God is in control. He he's gonna dictate how long I'm
1: I'm gonna be out for. I'm going to work
2: as hard as I can to try to be back um, for sure.
0: All right, so we'll see how that injury plays out in terms of how long Lindor is out and the Mets will miss him, but they do have enough with some of these guys back, I think, to stay on top of a weak division in the NL East. Ian O'Connor, 98-7 ESPN. We're also talking about the Open Championship. Morikawa with a three-shot lead over Oosthuizen and Spieth. Oosthuizen had some uh, bunker issues earlier in his round. He had the lead, of course, entering today. A guy who historically finishes second in these things. And he did win the Open Championship at St. Andrew 11 years ago. That's his one and only major. I know he's never won in the United States at all, but he has some European Tour victories and has the one major. But his specialty is finishing second in the big ones. And it looks like he's on track maybe to do that or finish third, depending on where Spieth Ends up. Now, Jordan Spieth, last won a major in 2017 at the Open, and so it's been a while for him. It's interesting with these young golf superstars, Speeth, Rory McElroy. We thought those guys would have more majors now. They have, they have a lot given their age, but I think the, the age of Tiger Woods, the standard he set, maybe elevated expectations for the stars that came behind him, and it was a great reminder, perhaps, that both of those guys have stalled Rory to a great degree. He hasn't won a major in seven years. And we're talking about him. We were back then winning 10 or more. Same thing, I think, with Spieth. But Tiger Woods, there's never going to be anything like him again in our lifetime in golf. Spieth just got a a birdie, so he's now two behind Morikawa, with a chance maybe to catch him with about six holes to play. So, uh, yeah, but Tiger Woods... He set the bar so high that I think the really special young players coming behind him maybe suffered against that when measured against that expectation. You could throw Kepka in there as well. Uh, These guys, Spieth, Rory particularly, have stalled in their pursuit. I know Rory publicly talked about winning double-figure majors. Kepka did as well. So they have plenty of years ahead of them to try to do that, but it is so hard in golf to win one major, never mind 10. of course, Tiger at 15, Jack Nicholas with the record at 18. But your thoughts on uh, do you think Spieth will win this today? And Morikawa, who's a really good, strong young player at age 24, he's won four times already on the PGA Tour. He won his first attempt at the PGA Championship, his first appearance last year. So he has a major already under his belt right now, still in semi-control of this tournament. If you have a thought on where you think this British is heading, give us a call at 1-800-919-3776. Also on the Mets, if you're a Mets fan, how concerned are you right now about this team and where it's heading? Now back to the Ian O'Connor Show on 98.7 ESPN. We're talking about the Mets. We're talking about the Open Championship, about the NBA Finals. We'll get to Yankees, Red Sox in a little bit. Mike Puma, the outstanding Mets beat writer of the Post, will join us at 1245 Mark Canizaro his colleague on the open championship right now Morikawa in not really in total control he's only got a two shot lead over Jordan Spieth trying to win his first major since 2017 but on the Mets it is a I, I think a situation that's pretty dire right now with the Grom hurt again Lindor out for who knows how long with the oblique the Mets losing In a heartbreaking fashion last night, the walk-off Grand Slam surrendered by Diaz to Jacob Stallings with two outs in the ninth. As I mentioned earlier, 314 times Major League Baseball teams were in that position, entering the eighth inning or later with at least a six-run lead. And all 314 times that team won until the Mets blew that lead last night late in Pittsburgh. So I think that uh, they need... To stabilize themselves, like the Yankees did, I think the Yankees did to some extent last night. Cole with a second straight really strong performance. Uh, obviously, the one before the All Star break, 129 pitches in his Houston homecoming, and then following that up with a rain delayed victory last night, 11 strikeouts and six innings, shutting down the Red Sox when he needed to in a in a big way because the Yankees had lost the first seven meetings to their blood rival, a team now that looks like will. Go ahead and win that division. Eight games up now on the Yankees, who are four and a half back in the wild card. And I think that's where they need to focus their attention on as far as trying to make the postseason tournament. Ian O'Connor, 98 7, ESPN. And JD Davis was asked about whether that negative injury news had an impact on his team.
1: You know, obviously having Francisco go down and Jacob go down. Um, but uh, I mean, it has put a little bit of damper on things. But We've dealt with some crazy adversity, this group. Um, And, you know, hopefully they can get back, you know, as soon as possible. Um, And, but um, you know, we went into this game, you know, with uh, with a ton of confidence and just a little swagger among us and just to try to go out there and win a ball game Um, to say that it kind of domino effect or put a damper on that. Not really, we're not really playing game and worrying about people who are injured and whatnot. So um, it does suck for in that standpoint,
0: but it is what it is. Um, this this kind of losses, yeah, yeah, it hurts, particularly against that team. And the Mets now four times against one of the worst teams in the sport, so they need to find a way today to right themselves. And uh, also the the Phoenix Suns, they're in a a more dire situation. They now have to win two sudden death games, and who would have thunk it, really? When you looked at the regular season, the Suns being the stronger team, winning 51 games, what did the Bucs win? I think 46. The Suns beat them twice during the regular season, though they were very close games. But the Suns did prevail in those games and then took the 2-0 lead in pretty convincing style to start the NBA Finals. I have to say, I'm surprised that Milwaukee responded the way it did. Winning two at home, okay, I could see that. But, but I really thought the Suns would bounce back and take control of this finals in Game 5 at home last night, and the opposite happened. Now they get out of the gate with that 16-point lead, and you're feeling pretty good if you're a Suns fan, and, and then all of a sudden they just got dominated in the second quarter and, and really in the third as well, and the problem that they're facing right now is Giannis and Middleton will get theirs. But when Holiday gets his as well, I don't think the Suns can win this series. I think it's amazing, and, and it's a game of inches in every sport, right? And when you think about where Milwaukee was in Game 7 at the end against Brooklyn in the Eastern Conference semis, when KD had his toe on the line, and I was across the way in, in Barkley Center, and from where my vantage point where I was sitting – behind the other basket, about halfway up the arena, it looked like a three. I obviously, from where I was sitting, could not see exactly where his big toe was, and it was on the line. But as he said, if my big blank foot wasn't so big, an inch or two shorter, he sends the Bucks home. And who knows? I think the Bucks make big changes. Budenholzer maybe gets fired. And because he... Had his big toe on the line, Durant, for an amazing shot. One of the best Game 7 or any big shots I've seen in a postseason situation. I've been watching the NBA for more than 40 years, 45 years. That and I asked Durant afterward if that was maybe his biggest shot, and he dismissed it and said, no way I've had much bigger than that. But when you think about it, Game 7, down 2, you need to make to just get into overtime and to make a shot like that You're backpedaling away from it, almost falling out of bounds. It goes in, and I just don't remember. I know he's won championships, but that was, I think, as big a shot as he's ever made, given the circumstances at the time. Now, had they won the game, maybe he would have felt personally different about it, but uh, at that moment in that uh, situation where he felt the sting of defeat, he couldn't really embrace it as his biggest or one of his biggest shots. And then Holiday has the great stop on him in overtime. Drew Holiday is just one of the best defenders in the world. Pound for pound, inch for inch. He's just such a strong guard when defending you. He's just one of those guys, if you're a guard in the NBA, you just don't want to see him around you because he just makes life difficult. And that's fine on the defensive end. What you don't want is him going for 27 on the offensive end, and 13 assists and outplaying Chris Paul, who had a pretty good game and came up big late. But right now when you have all three guys going, Phoenix Suns can't win that game and they can't win the series if that continues. So that has to change. And we'll see if Monty Williams comes up with a with a plan. That makes it change because he's been as good as any coach in the NBA. He's a great coach. He really is. And I think he's done a tremendous job with that team, putting them in this position to win a championship. I don't think this series is over. I do think Phoenix can win game six on the road, just like the Bucks won game five on the road. But they need more from Paul, who, again, he played pretty well and then really well at the end. He needs to have a big game for four quarters in game six. To give Booker who had 40 points. After having 42. Booker needs more help. Aiton did have 20 and 10. But there wasn't much coming. From from anywhere else. So it needs to be where yeah. Booker gives you 40. But Paul's got to give you high 20s. And Aiton's got to give you a little bit more. And Bridges has to make another shot of two. And then I think the Suns have a chance to push this back to Phoenix for a game seven, and then it's anybody's series. So it felt last night maybe like it was all over, but, but I don't think so. I think the Suns can show some resiliency here and, and bounce back and find a way. They just have to slow down one of those three of Milwaukee's big three, which outlasted Brooklyn's big three and injured big three, and now in position to win a championship. Phoenix, I think, just needs to come up with, I would focus on, Holiday, I think he is the least likely of the three to go off again offensively and just try to take him out of it a little bit, let Giannis and Middleton get theirs, and then try to win that way. Now back to the Ian O'Connor show on 98.7 ESPN. Jeff Van Gundy, he was nice enough to On a day where he's traveling to spend a few minutes with us, Jeff, of course, I always identify as the last man to lead the New York Knicks to the NBA Finals. He did that in 1999. He called the game last night. He'll have Game 6 with Breen and Jackson, of course, on Tuesday night. Thanks so much, Jeff, on a travel day for spending a few minutes. And I I was saying earlier that I think it's going to be very difficult for the Suns to win Game 6 and force a Game 7 if the big three, if all three of them score the way they did last night. I I suspect that... They have to find a way to slow down one of those guys. I would also suspect that the guy that is least likely to score like that again would be Holiday. But do you see any shot of Phoenix forcing a game seven if Milwaukee's big three scores like they did last night?
3: Well, both teams were outstanding on offense last night. I think both teams are going to go back and look at their defense and say, we played pretty good defense. The shot-making was incredible, and yet there are things they can do better. And I think, certainly, if you're Phoenix, you're going to say, we can't let everybody get going, and everybody did last night. And, you know, like you said, Holiday has been the most inconsistent of those three, so you would suspect that you would have your best chance uh, to limit him. Uh, You saw them throwing some traps on Middleton's pick-and-rolls that I thought Milwaukee handled well, which also opens up some other opportunities for other players. So these are tough choices, but they have to limit somebody.
0: Jeff Van Gundy on 98.7 ESPN. I'm curious, Jeff, where you see Chris Paul's game right now. It seems like in this finals, he's been kind of all over the map. He's had some really good moments, some not so good moments. He's looked a little bit older and slower and injured at times. And at other times he's looked like his prime self and at the end last night, he made some big plays, but he was outplayed by Holiday over the course of the game. Where, where do you see Chris Paul right now and maybe what he can bring this team in a in a game six?
3: Well, I think the overall length of Milwaukee has uh, posed some problems for Paul. I think he played uh, better last night. I think he's going to have to play even better, and I think... His struggles, you know, the turnovers uh, in the previous three games were well documented. But I think defensively, you know, he's had his issues as well because, you know, guys have been able to shoot over him. Now, they've matched him up with P.J. Tucker uh, as much as they can. Uh, That was a little problematic a few times on the offensive boards in previous games. So I I think he's played well uh, for the most part. You know, the turnovers are problematic, but you think about it. and you know, they're up nine on the road to go up 3-1. Last night they had the ball to take the lead in the last 20 seconds of the game. These games are being decided by razor-thin margins. And uh, that's why I think Milwaukee has a great chance to win game six. Uh, you know, I think these teams are fairly evenly matched.
0: And, and very well coached uh, as well. And uh, I was curious, Jeff, and it's funny, when Holiday made the steal on Booker, and wow, what a player Booker is. And, and he didn't even start a game in college. That shows you how good uh, the Kentucky team was in 2015, that Devin Booker didn't start on it, not one game, hard as it might be to to, to fathom. But when Holiday makes the steal on Booker, what flashed into my head right away and maybe this is just a sign of my age, was Game 4 in 1997 when Stockton made the steal on, on Michael Jordan. And I, I don't know why, but I, and I, I tweeted that out, and some people liked it, and other people said, no way. Of course, uh, Jordan stripped Karl Malone at, in, a, in a bigger moment to win a championship. But uh, how, how good of a play was that? As a guy who has uh, was a head coach in this league, very successful for a long period of time, to see a defensive stop and play like that, which of course led to the alley-oop dunk, just how good of a defensive play was that, in your opinion?
3: Well, I think it started, uh, in with great individual defense by Tucker on Booker on that possession, which made Booker come to a jump stop and momentarily hesitate. And Holiday, you know, came in there, and he didn't try to strip the ball with one hand. He ripped the ball with both hands. I mean... The strength and quickness of his hands are remarkable. And then I thought, well, you know, most people, and it would have been a prudent move as well, they're not risky throwing their pass. They're going to try to run as much time as they can, take the foul, and make two free throws. But for him to not only steal it, but notice uh, Giannis running the floor and have the basketball courage to throw it up there, uh, that's a heck of a... Two-way play.
0: Right, and there's a guy going for for the win and not playing it safe at all. That was a hell of a a play and a decision and a pass that he made, and Giannis, of course, finishing it off. Jeff Van Gundy here with Ian O'Connor on 98.7 ESPN. And just mentioning, going back to Booker, had 42 the other night, then 40 last night, and – I did. I watched him live at Kentucky. I saw him play live three times. I did not see an NBA superstar. And not only because Calipari was using him off the bench, I did not see this kind of talent, athleticism, playmaking in him. I, I figured he'd be a good NBA player, but not this. Just what is his upside, Jeff, in your estimation?
3: Well, he's a star. I mean, a star of stars. Like, the ability to score... Um, in all different ways. You know, he can take it to the basket, finish with either hand. He can post smaller guys. He's got a a deadly mid-range game. And then uh, he's continuing to develop the three point shot. The three he made to cut it to three from six on that catch and shoot from the sideline out of bounds was uh, one of the best catch and shoot shots you could ever see. Um, So I I like that he, got an edge to him he tries on defense he's unafraid to try to put his body in front of the you know in the contact situations so you know this guy is a big time star and he's got drive and he's got an edge to him that I think gives him a chance to be a big time winner in this league for a long time if surrounded by the right type of players.
0: Jeff after two games in this finals, and I think a lot of basketball fans maybe felt the same way. I, it just felt felt to me that Phoenix was the better team. I understand all they did was hold serve at home, but what do you think are the one or two things that just really changed the dynamic of this series that Milwaukee did to, to swing the momentum in, in their favor?
1: Well,
3: they had not shot the ball well. Um, obviously, last night they shot it great, but Prior to that, they hadn't shot it well, but what they had done well, they got to the free-throw line more than Phoenix. They had hurt them on the offensive boards had double the offensive rebounds of Phoenix. And they were averaging, going into last night, four or less turnovers than Phoenix a game. That type of possession game allows you to, to sometimes shoot a little bit worse than your opponent, but still find ways to win. And if you look at that Game 4 victory, down nine going into the fourth. Not a lot going right for them. And because of all those possession battles that they won, they gave themselves a chance for Middleton uh, to come through and Giannis to make the big block. So uh, I think it's that, you know, it's under talked about, but those are the things that can keep you in games.
0: Jeff Van Gundy on 98 7 ESPN. Jeff, of course, has the game. Game six Tuesday night with Mike Breen and Mark Jackson on ABC. A uh, final thing, Jeff, if you just looked at right now where Phoenix is, I, I don't think they suspected they'd be down three two going into a game six on the road. But just as the Bucks won a game five in Phoenix, I think certainly the Suns can win a game six in Milwaukee and then turn it into an anything or anything goes. Game 7 in the desert, what do you think is maybe the one thing that the Suns have to do Tuesday night to get this back to a Game 7?
3: Well, I think, again, I think when you have home court advantage in the last four minutes, five minutes of a game, it's it's a huge advantage. But you have to do the work uh, to get yourself in a position to win the game to allow your crowd to help you. I think oftentimes we talk in these ideas that, you know they have home court advantage, and you know the crowd and all that. And I think it's misunderstood that you're just, you know, and and if Milwaukee makes that mistake, that you know because they're home, it's all fine. Then you know it's going to put Phoenix in a better mindset. I think Phoenix also has to um, come out right away and set a tone defensively. I loved what they did in the first quarter. I thought Bridges, uh, was terrific against, uh, Middleton. He was up and into him. They made Milwaukee uncomfortable. Um, but when both teams rested their star to start the second booker for six minutes or around that many minutes, same with Giannis, uh, Milwaukee unexpectedly made a great run. And so, um, I think you're going to see Booker's rest time be even smaller than it has been. Um, It's going to be quick and efficient, uh, but he's going to have to be great. Chris Paul is going to have to be great and Aiton as well as defensively.
0: One final note. Jeff, I don't know if you agree or not, but I think one player who almost never gets talked about nationally, and it's funny because I saw him play against Devin Booker in the NCAA tournament uh, at Notre Dame, Pat Connaughton. I think he's a really good NBA player. He had 14 points last night, six rebounds, just a, plays good defense, doesn't make mistakes, athletic, just does a lot of things. How important is a guy like that off the bench for Milwaukee as they try to close out a championship?
3: Well, you think about it, he's become – he's Like you said, he's a good player, and he's become even more important because of the loss of Dante DiVincenzo, Mm -hmm. which negated a starter from Milwaukee for the entire uh, last, you know, for the whole playoffs and part of the regular season. And they have never really been able to find a a guard replacement. Um, And so last night in the second half, they went to seven guys just playing Portis and Connaughton. And Connaughton, like you said, his combination of three-point shooting, which opens up the floor, he is a a terrific guard rebounder in traffic. And he has got a competitive disposition and poise that allows him to play well in big moments. And so um, he has been a great, great addition to this team over the last couple years. He's gotten more opportunity. In Milwaukee than he got in Portland, and um, he's pure of heart, and you can tell by the way he just gives up of himself to the game, and I'm happy for his success.
0: All right, Jeff Van Gundy has Game Six on ABC Tuesday night with Mike Breen and Mark Jackson. Jeff, uh, particularly on a travel day, thanks so much for your time and insight.
3: You got it. Take care, Ian.
0: Okay, Mike Puma, my teammate at the post, has been a terrific beat writer covering the Mets for a number of years knows them more than anyone so Mike appreciate the time in Pittsburgh today for that start coming up here in a little bit is it a crisis in your opinion Mike Uh, they're still in first place two and a half games up in a weak division but with Lindor out DeGrom hurt again losing four games here to the Pirates over the last uh, six meetings where are the Mets right now in your estimation
1: Yeah, I think I would put it into a little bit of the crisis category. I mean, in the last, uh, you know, 24-plus hours here, you've you've watched the two biggest stars to the injured list, Francisco Lindor, who was uh, just starting to come around offensively and was was looking good at the plate here in July and, you know, been playing great defense all year. now Jacob DeGrom, uh, you know, comes back from the all-star break, had some tightness in his right forearm. Uh, they don't, you know, they don't know when he's going to start throwing again. So, yeah, I, I think when you, you put your two biggest stars on the injured list uh, in back-to-back days and you've lost consecutive games to the last-place Pirates, it, uh, it qualifies as a crisis.
0: Mike, when you look at the postseason possibilities for the Mets, I, I don't think a wild card is coming out of that division. So it appears to me they have to win the NL East to get in. Given Assuming that DeGrom is not out for any length of time and that uh, Lindor maybe he's out for a few weeks, not seven weeks but more like three, and we know an oblique, that's a delicate thing and who knows how long that's going to take to heal. But assuming he's not out for a really long period of time, do you think the Mets still have enough to win this division? I, th- I think they do
1: have enough to win this division now. So those are, you know, two big things you just mentioned. How long Degrom and uh, Lindor are out? Lindor's oblique strain has been classified as grade two, which is moderate. Yet, yeah, you know, you're probably looking at at least a month. You know, but you never know with those things. Um, you know, the biggest thing is that they've, they've got to get the guys who have been underperforming to perform at, at at the level they're accustomed to. Dominic Smith. Uh, is having a down season. Michael Concordo hovering around the 200 mark. Uh, now they just got JD Davis back the other night, and he he, he looked good uh, yesterday, hitting two home runs. But they, they they've got to get that offense going, you know, with the guys they have here before they can start thinking about, uh, you know, who could potentially help them maybe at the trade deadline.
0: The bullpen obviously was a a big issue last night. Lugo was a disaster. And Diaz, who'd been good pretty much all year, though he's had now two really bad moments against the Pirates. But Diaz hadn't given up a home run in, what was it, 48-plus innings and dating back to last year, which I think was the longest streak in the majors, he gives up the walk-off grand slam. And I know you're not in the clubhouse in the Zoom era during the pandemic, but could you get a sense of how – Devastating that defeat felt to the Mets after it happened.
1: Yeah, you could you could hear a little bit in their voices afterwards. You know, this is let's not forget now uh, with Diaz, this is the second straight timeout against the Pirates. To go back to that Sunday game at City Field, that closed the first half, and and that was quite a gut punch to give that one up and. This one just happened so quickly. It was boom, 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 and then, you know, that that ball disappeared behind the left field fence. So, you know, they, they've lost, you know, three straight games in the Pirates here. dating back before the All-Star break, and, and two of them have been uh, really shocking losses. The parents, you know, I call them soul-crushing losses, the, the, the two they sustained there.
0: Mike, I was going to ask about Rojas, and I I thought over the course of this season, he's basically pushed the right human buttons with this team. He's a young manager who I think will get better as far as being a tactician, but I, I, I think it seems, and you would know certainly a lot better than I would, that they do like playing for this guy. How would you assess his performance so far with this group? And, of course, he's going to be tested right now with these two injuries, to Lindor and to DeGrom, but uh, how would you assess Rojas overall this season?
1: I think he's been solid and he's grown. Uh, I think he, he feels freer uh, without, you know, the Will Ponds and Brody Van the hovering over maybe every word he said as was in, in the case last year. But, uh, you know, at the same time, you know, I, I think any manager, especially in New York, uh, the, the bullpen is going to be how he – they're largely great. At how, how you manage that bullpen. And, uh, last night wasn't great for Rojas. He, he left. Uh, he probably left Seth Lugo in a little too long there in the eighth inning, uh, allowing the Pirates uh, to start that comeback, and they scored five runs. So, uh, you know, there's, there's there's been some questionable bullpen moves. We've seen that with every Mets manager, and you know, this day and age, they're, they're going to get blown up even more on social media, but. I think Ross has done a solid job, and I, I like the way you put it. I think he's growing into the
0: job. All right, Mike Puma, read him on nypost.com. He's an outstanding beat writer for the Mets and has been uh, for the Post for a long time. Also read him in the newspaper, the New York Post. And he's got to work today in Pittsburgh. A big game for the Mets to try to write themselves. Mike, it was very nice of you to take a few minutes, and hopefully we'll talk again soon. All right, thanks for having me, here. Okay, Mike Puma. Now back to the Ian O'Connor Show on 98.7 ESPN. It's now 6-1 Pittsburgh. Mets have two men on. Conforto up in the third with two outs. Uh, Conforto has just had a really difficult time this year trying to get on track. This would be a great time for a three-run homer to make it a 6-4 game. But yeah, Conforto is one of the main reasons the Mets are in a crisis situation right now as we discussed earlier two and a half up in the division in a division they should be controlling to a greater degree right now having lost four recent games here to the pirates and not a good situation they need to get out of it with Lindor out for weeks now Degrom with another injury we don't know what that will lead to when he will be back hopefully much sooner than later and it's only one start that he misses the start that he would have made tomorrow night in cincinnati ian o'connor And it's 98.7 ESPN. And this 98.7 ESPN leaderboard update is brought to you by PGA TOUR Superstores. Colin Morikawa, at age 24, has won his second major championship at the Open Championship with a 66 of four under 66 today for a total of 15 under 265 at Royal St. George's. He beat Jordan Spieth, who hasn't won a major since 2017. By two shots, John Rahm was four back. John Rahm, of course, won the U.S. Open. Oost Hazen, who won the Open Championship in 2010 and has a long history of second place finishes in majors, he also was four back at 11 under. Kepka tried to make a run. He finished at eight under, and DJ was at seven under. So, Morikawa, with a really now is, is that generation is the guy emerging out of the pack here with two majors. At his age, and a chance to add on next year and get on a real roll. And at some point, somebody here, and I know Kepka's has talked about it, and Rory McIlroy has talked about getting to double figures. The next person behind Tiger to try to make a run at ten. It'll be interesting to see who that is. Kepka has wanted. He said publicly at the PGA a couple of years ago that he was going to do it. That was his goal. We'll see. He's a, he's at uh, Kepka has four majors. Speeth has three. Rory has four, but hasn't won in. Seven years. And that's the leaderboard update brought to you by PGA Tour Superstores. Shop with the pros at your New York or New Jersey area PGA Tour Superstores, the home for golf pros and beginners. Your thoughts on the Knicks, what they should do this summer at the point guard spot 1 800 919 3776. Let's go to Rich in Poughkeepsie. Rich, your thoughts on the Knicks and Lonzo Ball. Go ahead, Rich.
1: Yes, sir. I think uh, the Knicks should be looking at Lonzo Ball. Uh, we don't gotta trade up anything, no assets. Uh, Knicks fans who want to keep our young players—that's you know—that's a check mark on for that. Um, other than that, you know, is Ball's a good three-point shooter, facilitator. Maybe can open up the Knicks, running, running gun basically. Unlock Obi a little bit and go from there. He's a big point guard. Don't gotta trade nothing for Sexton. Don't gotta do anything much. Just you know, see Pelicans don't want him. So see we can basically lowball him a little bit, you know, give him a decent contract. And I think that would help and also attract another star to come to the Knicks.
0: Well, one thing, and thanks for the call. One thing I like, Rich, one thing I like about Lonzo Ball, among others, I'm a Lonzo Ball guy for the most part, is his three-point percentage has improved pretty much every year. 30% year one, 33% year 2, 375 year 3, 378 year 4. So a little improvement in his fourth season. I guess the question is, is Zion Williamson going to push management to bring him back? And I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know what Zion Williamson really, truly feels about Lonzo Ball as a potential championship piece in New Orleans, or even if Zion Williamson, deep down, plans on being there for, for many years. But... Yeah, the Knicks, it wouldn't cost assets. The New Orleans would have a chance, since he's only a restricted free agent, to match that. But we'll see how it plays out. And that is a distinct possibility. I would say that Dinwiddie is a possibility. Chris Paul's out there as well. Some people think that is Bobby Marks, the former Nets executive, now a salary cap and league expert for ESPN. He believes that Chris Paul and Knicks, that's a serious thing. That That's probably the only team outside of Phoenix that Chris Paul will seriously entertain. And I asked Bobby Marks last week if he had to put $20 down on, and I named the available point guards in free agency, who would he bet on as far as starting the season for the Knicks next year? And he picked Chris Paul. Jason in Hamburg, you have a thought on the Knicks and what they should do at the point guard spot? Go ahead, Jason. What's up, my man?
1: So I would not give up the farm for Sexton. But I would like him. And you know what? Lonzo Ball just somehow came out of nowhere when I wasn't thinking about him. He would be good as well. You please tell me why Chris Paul would be good here other than helping the newer guys. He's too expensive. He's at the end of his ride on this trail, on the back nine, as you would say. Why would we want that? Let's get some younger blood in. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to rebuild.
0: Well, I'm not I'm not opposed to some of the younger point guards. If the Knicks can get Colin Sexton without giving up a ton of assets or if they can get Lonzo Ball and, and New Orleans doesn't match or even Dinwiddie, who I think is is a really good player and he's coming off an injury. I have no problem with that cuz it's an upgrade no matter how you look at it. And Chris Paul to me still has some Agreed. some really good basketball left. I'm not going to cry a river of tears if the Knicks don't sign him. But I think that's I, – I still think he's a very viable guy. I think through the postseason – listen, he's helped lead a team to – he's two games away from winning a championship as the starting point guard and a very important piece on, on a Phoenix Suns team that still has a chance to win the whole thing. So to suggest that it, it's kind of crazy to think of Chris Paul at age 36, he's never been a guy who's relied on athleticism. And he's, ne- he's just not one of those – he's not no. like Russell Westbrook or John Wall or one of these high-flying point guards – uh, John Morant he's, not, he's never been like that so he, he is going to age pretty gracefully and do I think it's possible that if you sign him for three years he only gives you two really good years and then one so-so year yeah I think that's possible but I still think the benefits but your words is viable he's pretty expensive for viable well let's see let's see what the you know, offer would be and what he's going to command because one, one thing Jason remember is the son's owner is not a guy who likes to spend a lot of money He's known for that. So I'm not sure if the Knicks have to give him, right. have to max out with that offer. He may want to go to work for Leon Rose, and he may want to make a deal with he'll the Knicks the that game. is more appetizing. Agents will play the game. You know this. What's that? I'm sorry? He'll play the game. You know it. And he'll play, the, he'll play the
1: game of, yeah. you know, they don't want to pay me this much, but this is how much I want. I just don't think the Knicks should, should go in that direction, and I think I speak for the majority on that one.
0: Okay, thanks for the call, Jason. Appreciate it. And there are people I've talked to and I've heard from who who just think Chris Paul is too old. And I think athletes today, we are seeing them push the boundaries of human achievement like they never before. I mean, if you look at Tom Brady, who I had a conversation with a few years ago on the phone where we talked about him playing when he was 47 and 48. And he's on track to maybe do that. And I understand that. Playing point guard in the NBA is more demanding on your legs than being a pocket passer in the NFL. But Chris Paul, is, to me, is almost the equivalent of a pocket passer right now. But he's still really good. I think what you've seen in these finals, people are starting to forget some of the really good things he's done in the postseason. He's played at a really high prime time level during most of the postseason. And I I think he has a lot of really good basketball left in him two years maybe, three years possible. So let's see if the Knicks make a push and if Chris Paul entertains it. But if they get one of these younger point guards who have a lot of ability, like a Sexton, Alonzo Ball, a Dinwiddie, hey, I'd have no problem with that. That is definitely an upgrade. Your thoughts on the Knicks, what they should do this summer, particularly at the point guard spot. That's where they need a major upgrade more than any other position, I think, in the minds of most Knicks fans. Also on the Mets. Are they indeed falling apart? Now back to the Ian O'Connor Show on 98.7 ESPN.